0: Good morning. Good morning. Merry, Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's good to uh, be with you this morning. Glad so many of you could uh, be uh, gathered together with us on this Christmas morning to uh, worship Jesus together to celebrate His birthday together. I said uh, on Thursday night at our Christmas Eve service, you could come in your jammies if you needed to, your Christmas jammies, and so it doesn't look like anyone took me up on that offer. Uh, but but you, you, this was your chance. And you missed it for another seven years or so, so you might want to put that on your calendar for next time. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 today, Isaiah chapter 9, that's where we have been the whole month of December. And I want to start, uh, we've got lots of, lots of kids here this morning, so I want to start by asking the kids a question, do you know how many bones are in uh, an adult's body? Is there any kids without grabbing your parents' phone or looking it up on your phone? Do you know how many bones are in the human body? Do you have a guess at it? I see some hands. Just say it out to me. Wait, wait, what what did you say? Well, he nailed it. (laughs) Uh, I was hoping it would be a little bit harder than that. Uh, Great job. There are two hundred and six bones. In the adult human's body, but I heard somebody else back there throw out the number of 300. And I want you to know that you're actually not wrong about that, because babies are born with a lot more individual bones than adults have. While the adult human body has about 206 bones in it, uh, a baby is born with around 300 bones. And a newborn has 300 bones, because these, these bones are going to basically fuse together, they're going to join together, and they're going to get connected up as, as the child grows. But there are 300 bones so that it makes it easier for a baby to be born. Uh, another way of putting it is, is having lots of bones makes a baby, for lack of a better terms, more squishy. You can't squish a baby. But babies are a little bit more squishy. They are collapsible if you want to look at it that way. That's, that's science for those of you who aren't, aren't keeping up with me. It's science. Now if you were to look at the newborn baby Jesus that's lying there in the manger. And I want you to just try to imagine him in your mind's eye in the manger that evening. And you look at, look at how small he is. And you, he looks like any other normal baby. There's several families in our church that are going to be able to uh, identify with this in a very special way because there are some, some people who have had babies this month or people who have had babies uh, just in the last of this year. So you're you may be holding one in your hand. And when your baby is born, it has a giant head and a small body that's, like I said, it's squishy, it's collapsible. Those shoulders are very small. And Jesus' shoulders when he was born are no different if you were to look at him there in the manger. You would have seen these small, soft little shoulders like any other baby, or maybe the baby you have in your home right now. But the prophet Isaiah that we've been listening to all through the month of December promised that that child who was born would grow up to have the weight of the world on those little shoulders. Isaiah says this in chapter 9 and verse 6, the verse that we've read over and over again throughout the month of December. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and in this phrase, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now this may be your first time with us this morning. You may be visiting family or something like that. But if you've been with us throughout this month, and you know that we have been studying each of these four titles throughout the month of December. We're taking a, a message each to just focus on the significance of those titles and the implications of those titles for our own lives, but now on this Christmas morning, I want us to go back and consider now that we've, we've considered all these four titles, I want us to think about exactly what the Bible says in this passage, that this little baby with those small soft shoulders, what this child was going to grow up to do. And Isaiah tells us what this child is going to grow up to do in the very next verse, in Isaiah uh, 9 and verse 7. Here's what the Bible says there. It goes on to say, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what exactly does Isaiah say that this little baby is going to grow up to do? And if I had just asked that question at the beginning, what is this baby going to grow up to do, you would have thrown out a variety of answers, and and there are a variety of answers to be given to that question, but Isaiah gives one that we might often think about this promised child is going to grow up to set up a government we can see this from the words in this verse isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7 words like government and throne and kingdom indicate to us that that jesus is going to grow up to set up a a new regime, if you will, a new administration. We've had things like the Bush administration and the Obama administration and the Trump administration, and now we are we have the Biden administration, but Jesus is going to come up and set up the Messiah's administration, the Messiah's government. So this morning, this Christmas Day, I'd like us just to think for a few minutes about this truth, the son is given to bear the government on those shoulders. Those small little shoulders are going to grow up to bear the government of the entire world. There's been a saying that's been adapted from one of Shakespeare's plays, and it, it goes this way, heavy is the head that wears the crown. You've probably heard that phrase before When you hear that phrase, heavy is the head that wears the crown, you understand that this is not necessarily referring to the fact that the the crown itself is heavy, although I've read that some of those crowns made out of pure gold with jewels and things in them were quite heavy. But that's not what the saying means. When we say, heavy is the head that wears the crown, we are referring to the fact that leadership is a great responsibility. It's a great responsibility, and in fact, The more people you lead, the more people you have depending on you, the greater the burden that leadership is. The more difficult the circumstances of the people that you lead are, the greater the burden of leadership is. And if there's one thing that we know from reading the Old Testament about the monarchy, the the kings in Israel, it's that there was a massive failure of leadership. Was there not? We have, this, we have this great leadership from King David, although many he made many mistakes himself. And then we see, we see his son Solomon come to the throne, and we think, if we're reading and we've never seen this before, that, wow, David has set this on a great path. Solomon has asked for wisdom. He's going to move this forward in a fantastic way. But by the end of Solomon's reign, the wheels have totally come off. The kingdom splits in half into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And as you read through the history of the Old Testament, you see king after king after king utterly fail. There are bright spots here and there. But for the most part, the monarchy in in Israel is not able to shoulder the burden of leadership in a way that would cause God's people to flourish and to grow and experience peace and prosperity. In fact, Ahaz himself is the king that that this promise is being made to, And, and Ahaz is in a conundrum, you might remember, because he's the king of the southern kingdom, and he knows that the northern kingdom and the nation of Syria have gotten together, and they want to attack him, and they want to overthrow him, and he's trying to figure out what in the world he's going to do, and he is so desperate for answers that the Bible tells us he actually consults with mediums and necromancers. He resorts to witchcraft and people who claim to be able to communicate with the dead to try to get some kind of direction. Now, does that sound like good leadership? The answer is no. It doesn't. But it's into that situation that the prophet Isaiah speaks of... A king who is coming, a child who's going to be born, a son who's going to be given, whose shoulders are actually going to be broad enough to carry the weight of the the fortunes of the nation. In fact, he is one day going to sit on David's throne. And so this morning, I want to ask just three questions as we consider this idea of the son being given to bear the government on his shoulders. I just want us to ask three questions of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. Here's the first question. If he's going to set the government on a shoulder, what is going to be the extent of his government? And I believe this verse answers that question in two ways. Number one, it will be unlimited in scope. It will be unlimited in scope. The beginning of this verse, verse 7, says, Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Every earthly government has its limits. There are limits of what it can, what it can ask of its citizens, limits of taxes that can be imposed on its citizens, there are limits upon what laws it is prudent to both enact, and a government has a, has a limited ability to enforce the laws that it enacts upon its citizens. Every government is limited in its scope, and even some of the world leaders that you think of who have absolutely unlimited power, those who are, those who are dictators in their own countries, I'm thinking of countries like North Korea, the dictator of North Korea has almost absolute authority over his people. He can have people put to death for just simply at his word. There is no such thing as due process there. But even the dictator of North Korea has a limited scope of his government, does he not? It's limited. That, that absolute authority is limited within the confines of his own of his own. Small borders. I mean, I don't think any of you woke up this morning and asked yourself if the supreme leader approved of what you were doing. In fact, I didn't think I, don't, I doubt any of us thought the the dictator of North Korea would be brought up this morning at all. It doesn't factor into our thoughts. Even the harshest of dictatorships have their limits. But this verse points to a picture painted throughout the rest of scriptures of Christ the King with an administration that encompasses the entirety of the universe. There is no place where he does not reign. His reign will be unlimited in scope. It will have no borders. I think many people in this room would be opposed to the idea of big government But this is big government like you have never seen before, because of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So imagine this baby, these small shoulders in the manger, growing up to be a king with a government that is unlimited in scope there's a second answer we're asking what the extent of this government will be it will be unlimited in scope and in the second place it will be eternal in time eternal in time our, our text uses phrases like there will be no end or from this time forth and forevermore every human civilization every human government uh, goes through a goes through an arc where it Rises to power, it experiences a golden age, and then it experiences a decline in power. One of the great, uh, one of the great civilizations is the Roman civilization. The Roman civilization lasted for about a millennium. So this is this is a this is a a long period of reign, and it reaches its zenith. It reaches its high point for about. 200 years that just happens to, in God's providence, coincide with Jesus' birth. And its high point lasts for about two centuries. And it doesn't, experience a, it doesn't experience a quick decline because it is conquered by another nation. It experiences a, a two-century slow decline until it eventually becomes irrelevant. And history shows us that you can think of every great civilization that has has existed on planet Earth has followed the same arc to one degree or another. But this is an administration that will never experience a demise. Christ's rule has no term limits. He is going to sit on David's throne and his rule is going to continue forever. That's the extent of his rule. Unlimited in scope, eternal in time. There's a second question that I want to ask of our text. What will be the character of this government? We're asking, first of all, the question is, t- tell me about where are the edges of this government? Well, there are actually no edges to this government. It encompasses everything. What is this What is this regime, what is this administration going to be like? What is the platform of Jesus' rule? And our text answers that question for us in a couple of ways. I'm going to pull out two qualities that are part of the platform of of King Jesus' rule. The first quality of this government is that it will be a government of peace. A government of peace. You and I do not think of peace as a permanent thing. We go through periods of peace. There are cycles of peace where where everything is going smoothly and we are at we are are not at odds with any of our neighbors anywhere in the world. But this verse tells us that not only the increase of his government there will be no end, but of the increase of his peace there will be no end, which means his peace will unfold and unfold and unfold, and the peace will will, will, will increase in ways that we can't even imagine right now. I recently took my oldest daughter Stella on a, a college uh, trip visit. And while we were there in while we were there visiting one of those colleges, we had the opportunity to sit in on a modern African history class. And the thing that was going on in this modern African history class is they were, the the teacher was leading the class in a discussion about how, uh, how other nations can help bring about, or if they can help bring about, peaceful conditions in nations like Somalia. And they were referring to the disaster that was uh, that uh, the, of the u s entry into Somalia, the Black Hawk down situation, what what started as a humanitarian effort turned into military operations, and now now we have a mess on our hands, and the class discussion was what's to be done about something like that? And you think maybe that you can jump in there and, and propose some answers about what can be done to bring about conditions of peace in Somalia, what can be done to to alleviate some of the conditions of human suffering, of of hunger, of of warring factions in this nation. But when you start really exploring what it would take and all the factors as the class was doing, uh, my mind was spinning by the end of class. Plus, it's been a long time since I've been in college, so that could have had something to do with it as well. But they were just talking about If if a nation wants to intervene, how does a nation intervene without uh, having overtones of colonization in the nation? Or if you're trying to set up a government there, how are you going to set up a government when there are over 20 different tribal regions in that land? How do you, are you going, who is going to be the leader And how are, if you're going to try to set up something democratic, how are you going to get people from other tribes to do anything but vote for the people in their tribe? Or something as simple as language. These multitudes of of tribes all speak different languages. Whose language gets to be the official language? And then you're coming in with a a cultural mindset. Outsiders are going to come with a cultural mindset that doesn't fit that culture. We don't live in an honor-shame culture. They do. And so things that are done between each other or things and conflicts that go back, just go back centuries can't simply be dismissed with the wave of a hand. I mean, the more the students began to explore all the difficulties and complexities, uh, I got to the end of that discussion thinking, well, I don't know if anyone can do anything to, to create more peaceful conditions. And we're talking about one country on one continent, in the entire world. When you start thinking about it that way, it ought to to increase your wonder that Isaiah is promising a child who will not only bring peaceful conditions to that little country, or not to just one continent, but that he will bring about peaceful conditions between every tribe and tongue and nation and the entirety of the world. There's only one figure that can do that, the baby that's lying in the manger we're looking at this morning. There's a second quality that characterizes this government, not only peace, but justice. Justice and righteousness are are words in the Old Testament that are found in our text that are almost overlapping. There's so, much, uh, there's so much that they share between them. This word for justice that's found here is used about 418 times in the Old Testament, in case you're wondering if it's an important concept or not. The need for justice is a central theme of Scripture And the fact that Isaiah is is speaking of a king coming, a child who's going to be born, whose government will be one of justice, is of particular interest because the people that are receiving this prophecy, the people that are receiving this word, are not living in in a time that is characterized in any way by justice. Isaiah has already said this in in chapter 5 and verse 7 of God. He looked for justice... But behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. God had made it very clear to his people in the the law that was to rule the nation that it was to be characterized by justice. Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 19 says, you shall not pervert justice, yet the nation was characterized by injustice after injustice after injustice. An administration was clearly needed that would restore justice and righteousness for God's people and the world. And Isaiah is telling us that a child is going to be born who's going to do exactly that. This big government is going to be characterized thoroughly by peace and perfect justice. Okay. We will be done soon. So, you can open your presence and eat your ham. Number three, last question. What will be the driving force behind this government? What will be the driving force? The question we're asking is how is this going to happen? What's going what's to be the engine that drives the Messiah administration? And there are all sorts of things that are are the driving force behind the various governments that we see. Sometimes the driving force behind a particular government is a military installation of that government. It's It's a militarized government. Other times, a government is driven by a particular set of philosophical principles that somebody dreamed up in a lab and thought, let's try it and see if it works. Other times... Governments, the driving force behind them is a a system of founding documents and principles that are their guides. Other uh, other governments are led by charismatic personalities who are either greatly loved or greatly feared. There are all sorts of things that are the animating force behind various systems of government. So how can we be sure that this child will do the almost too fantastic to believed task of setting up a government that is unlimited in scope, eternal in time, and characterized by peace and justice. The answer is found at the end of our verse, verse 7. The end of our verse says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts who's going to get this done. Zeal is not a word we use very often, but zeal is simply simply an eagerness or an ardent interest in the pursuit of something. God's giving of the Son to establish a government, to build a government on His back that is going to reign in peace and righteousness is not some kind of side hustle of God's that he has has going on amidst all the other things going on. God's intent for this government is not something that he occasionally turns his attention to. The whole arc of human history has been bending towards the establishment of this government of which there will be no end. How does the Bible describe God's zeal? I love the way the Bible describes his zeal. In our book that we've been looking at, Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 13, the Bible says this The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. That's a a picturesque way of talking about the driving force behind this government that's going to be set up. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 17 tells us that the Lord wraps himself in zeal as with a cloak. Not only is this a significant concern of the Lord's, not only does he have a vested interest in seeing this through, but the Lord of hosts has the ability to do this. There are all kinds of delusional people in the world who have existed throughout human history who have thought that somehow they could unite the entire world under their rule, and every single one of them has failed to one degree or another. But let me remind you of one of the titles that is given for this child who is going to be born that we examined several weeks ago, Mighty God. He was described as a mighty God, and I told you at that time that that Hebrew word mighty, when it stands alone, can be translated as hero or champion. So what the scriptures are telling us is that when you look at that baby in the manger as we are doing this morning, in all of its softness and in all of its smallness and all of its weakness, you are looking at a champion, a mighty God who is going to grow up to have the weight of the government of the universe firmly on his shoulders. The Lord's zeal for this is the engine that is going to drive his administration forward. And it all starts with the child who's going to be born, with the son who's going to be given. Those small shoulders will one day wear the weight of the world. But the Bible tells us that before they bear that weight, they're going to bear the weight of something else. That child is going to grow up. His shoulders are going to broaden. And they are going to become able to be lashed with a whip. Those shoulders are going to, those adult shoulders are going to be bloody. And then they're going to have a cross placed on those shoulders. And and that man is going to carry that cross as far as he can before he stumbles. And someone else has to carry it the rest of the way for him. And then those shoulders are going going to be pressed up against that crossbar, and after bearing the weight of the whips, and after bearing the weight of the cross, those shoulders are going to bear the weight of our sin. As the song says, behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. One of the great things the Bible tells us and one of the re- reasons we celebrate the good news of Jesus together this morning in the baby who was born is that everybody who comes to Jesus bearing the weight of their sin on their shoulders can come to the foot of cro- the cross and have that lifted. Wait for us. And every person who comes to Jesus with the weight of their sin, will find forgiveness at the cross. We celebrate the birth of our hero, our champion, our Savior this morning. But today could be the morning we celebrate another birth. You may be here this morning and you may feel the the work of the Spirit in your heart right now. And if you're feeling that, we want you to know that this is a day that you could be born again. If you will, right where you are sitting, repent of your sins and believe the good news. You could walk out of here with the burden off your back forever. For the rest of us who have put our faith in Jesus, this morning, we look forward to the reign of Jesus. And it is a reign and a rule of which there is no end in sight. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to gather together. We are grateful to gather together this Sunday morning to worship you. We are grateful for the people that you have brought here And Lord, if there is one person here among us who is feeling the work of the Spirit, your Spirit, in their heart, I pray that you would help them to not leave this place until they have found rest for their souls. Lord, we look forward to a day when your reign will never end. I pray that this would be a great day of celebration and joy as we celebrate the birth of of our champion. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.